Welcome to North of 48. It's February the 13th, the day before Valentine's. It's three degrees Celsius in Northern Canada, and I'm happy to uh, to have you with us. Uh, we have some special guests lined up today to discuss about Ukraine. Uh, first, I'm going to bring on is Anne Lee. Anne um, has a column with the uh, at the Daily Kos, KOS, and she's a professor. Hi, Anne. How are you? Good. Good. Thank you, Walter. Hey, thank you, Anne. All right. Next, we're going to bring up uh, Mr. Jonathan, Professor Jonathan Bick. He taught poli-sci at Western Connecticut State University for nearly a decade. He now works at the University of Massachusetts. He can be seen on the David Feldman Show commenting on current political events, and occasionally he gets them right. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Once in a while, Walt. That's true. Thank you. All right, and our our, our special uh, uh, guest is Paul Jay of the Analysis News, who's um, got some award-winning documentaries out there. And what I like about you, Paul, is you do interviews with people whose voice should be heard in mainstream news, but is not necessarily heard, and and you get different angles and different takes, and I really appreciate that. And um, he started the Real News Network and uh, interviewed Gore Vidal. Uh, all, all nice stuff. Should we push for a compromise or support Zelensky's call to push Russia out of all of Ukraine at this time? Do you got an angle on that, Anne? Actually, I don't. I Diplomacy is incredibly complex, and the, the issue of pushing for any kind of uh, lull or ceasefire uh, is incredibly problematic, and the major powers haven't uh, seen fit to try and attempt to do that. Even as disinformation, uh, recall that uh, uh, Putin uh, claimed that there was a ceasefire and a variety of other things and mm. still continued combat. That's true. How about you, John? And are you including in that um, pushing the Russians not only out of Ukraine uh, proper, but Crimea, the Crimean Peninsula? I think the question, yeah, I think that's what Zelensky said he would like to do, yes. So I would include that. Yeah. Uh, no, my position would be to uh, reach some sort of compromise because it um, it, it seems unlikely that... Uh, Ukraine is going to be able to do that by itself. And uh, I think that the more that the US and uh, the Western powers, NATO powers continue to um, add more and more support for Ukraine, uh, the greater danger there is that this could expand into a war that includes more than just Ukraine and Russia. and uh the possibility of uh nuclear weapons being used increases and i think these are very dangerous um possibilities so i would be in favor of a, a compromise oh well said paul do you have some thoughts on this uh yes uh but in terms of the format uh how do you i mean i tend to blab on do you want me to blab on or you want me to make this short you blab on as much as you want my friend we're here to hear you <laughs> well, poor you but here i go okay um i think we have to start 
our analysis uh, from two points. Uh, and, and, and then we look at almost anything going on in the world, but particularly now Ukraine. Mm. That is the, the catastrophic existential threat of the climate crisis. And it could be an even more immediate catastrophic threat of nuclear war. And then you start to look at Ukraine or Taiwan or any anything you want to look at. But hmm. let's look at Ukraine. There will not be a Ukraine to speak of in 10 to 20 years. There'll be no agriculture left. Uh, much of the country will be unlivable. Because if you look at the IPCC report on climate, which is very conservative, but a new report just came out from James Hansen, who used to work at NASA. Uh, he doesn't think we're on the road to two degrees or three degrees. He thinks we are on the road to 10 degrees. Get that, Ooh. 10, which essentially means there might be a few humans left in the Arctic. And that's about it. Dibs, I, I call dibs. So for Ukrainians, to like for Zelensky to call for a no-fly zone to to push the Russians and Putin Putin's government into a humiliating defeat and 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 the desperation that goes with that um, it it accomplishes two things one the possibility and and the Chinese actually wrote this in an editorial in Global Times if Putin fears for his own life if Putin's regime is teetering, if the Russian people believe that this war has become uh, such a disaster that it might even lead to the, the uh, breaking of uh, the national fabric of the Russian Federation, because there's many uh, ethnic ethnicities and nationalities that are doing very bad in this Russian Federation, uh, it could, you could see the breakup or potential breakup if, if the Russians see this as a real disaster, which some of the Americans want, and not only Americans, but some of the, of the, the real hawks are hoping for this breakup, uh, then desperate measures may come. Uh, and, and those desperate measures could include the use of a tactical nuclear weapon. Uh, if, if Zelensky is serious about uh, quote unquote, liberating Crimea. The, the reason I put quote unquote on Crimea, because I think Crimea is a different story than uh, Donbass. Uh, several Western polling firms polled Crimea after the Russian organized referendum because not many people trusted the results of that referendum. Mm -hmm. And I think it was three different Western polling firms found that in fact, the results of that referendum whether the process was legitimate or not, it actually did reflect the majority public opinion in Crimea. Uh, and the naval, Russian naval bases there, I, I mean, Russia does see Crimea as a part of Russia, of the Russian Federation. And, and if Zelensky is serious about, you know, trying to throw the Russians out of Crimea, I think that is beyond a red line. Uh, maybe it's even a, beyond a red line that even the US would accept. Uh, but I don't know, the, the, uh, the, the, the war hysteria in the United States right now, uh, whether it's about Ukraine or whether it's about China, the pressure of domestic politics is 
you can't look weak on Russia. You can't look weak on China and expect to win the next election. Mm. And whether that's even true or not, it's another story. I don't know that Americans actually care that much, but certainly it's something the political elites believe to be true and is driving and has driven over the decades, much of US foreign policy, you know, the, the fear of looking weak, the fear of being humiliated. Um, so I start when, and I've had this conversation with Ukrainians, I've had it with lefty progressive Ukrainians, you know, and I've said to them, because even they are saying, some of the, you know, socialist left-wing Ukrainians, they want to liberate Crimea, not just Donbass, and, and, and they just discount. They say, you can't succumb to the, the nuclear blackmail of Putin. Mm -hmm. Well, why not? Why can't we succumb to the nuclear blackmail if, it's, if there's some legitimacy to it? And there might be. Over Crimea, there might be. Um, especially uh, in Crimea, where, as I said, it, it seems, at least prior to the invasion, I don't know what it is now, mood might have changed. If most of the people want to be part of the Russian Federation, then why shouldn't they be? In fact, that goes for Lugansk, that goes for Donetsk. Uh, there needs to be legitimate referendums to see where and how these people want to live. And they have a right, I think, to self-determination. And, and you know, for quite a while, what the people of Lugansk and Donetsk and such wanted was actually to be in Ukraine, but within a federated system. In 2014, uh, when they declared a kind of in, uh, autonomy from uh, Kiev. It wasn't a demand to join Russia. It was a demand to have a federated system. And I believe something kind of, you know, we're in Canada, you and I, and we have a federated system. And uh, mm -hmm. Quebec's, the civil code in Quebec is not the same as the rest of Canada. They have language laws protecting French that don't exist in the rest of Canada. Uh, and a federated system might have worked. Uh, so why wasn't a fairly reasonable proposal from the people in those regions uh, acknowledged, respected, adopted by the Ukrainian state. And this is where the whole thing gets complicated, which is the Ukrainian oligarchy uh, is not the villain of the piece. Clearly, it's the Russian oligarchy and the Russian state, you know, if you want, within this time frame and this region is the villain of the piece. I say it that way because this only takes place within the context of global monopoly capitalism, uh, a vicious, horrendous system that's given us World War I, World War II, and endless wars uh, afterwards, including the use of nuclear weapons. It takes place within that system, a system since World War II, managed by the United States. And, and it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, no power within this monopoly capitalist system has more blood on its hands than the United States. That doesn't mean <clears throat> in terms of the Ukraine war, the specificity of it. It doesn't mean the Russians aren't, uh, have, did not launch a war of aggression. It is illegal and it continues to be a war of aggression and continues to be illegal and it continues to be uh, you know, catastrophic for Ukraine and who knows, may turn out to be catastrophic for Russia. And it could turn out to be catastrophic for all of us. But the Ukrainian government is not a good guy in this story. The Ukrainian government before the invasion 
could have said something that was obvious to anyone that knew anything about it. They should have just taken NATO off the table and said, look, no one, they're not going to let us in anyway, so we might as well just say, you know, withdraw our application. And there were many Ukrainian voices saying that before the invasion. Just acknowledge the truth here. Ukraine's not getting into NATO, so stop making it an issue. Now, whether that would have stopped the invasion or not, I don't know. I think there are a lot of domestic reasons why Putin launched this. But he would have lost his principal argument, and that argument does matter in terms of Russian public opinion. And this public opinion matters. It mattered in the U.S. and the Vietnam War, and, and, and it matters now. Putin does not want to lose Russian public opinion, and it seems he is to some extent. Mm. So the Ukrainian government could have taken that off the table. Of course, the U.S. government could have taken it off the table, and they didn't. Uh, quite the contrary, they made it such a big issue that it became another point of humiliation for Putin. Um, so just to step back a bit, we, we are dealing, as I said, with a system of global monopoly capitalism, global imperialism, and I see that that basic system you could look at as a cancer. And it's not new, this cancer has been around. Uh, and you could say even from the early 20th century, it brought us the First World War and the Great Depression and so on. This cancer has been getting worse. And, it, and it's, re, it, it, it's, uh, it's like a parasite, if you want. And that parasitism is, is based in finance because finance has become so parasitical and mm. people call it like a global casino and so on um but it's getting worse and, and it's and and that normal cancer is managed by our democratic institutions so the normal democratic party the normal republican party meaning more like bush cheney than than Trump and, and the Christian nationalists. They manage this cancer and in different ways. The Democrats want slightly less intense exploitation of American workers. The Republicans, if they had their way, would probably go back. This certainly this version of Republicans. They want to certainly go to America before the New Deal. And some of them wouldn't mind going back to slave society or some variation of it. And they fight over that. How much should we intense, how intense should the exploitation be? And the Democrats' argument, and I'm talking the elites here, not ordinary people who are part of the party or vote for the party, even the majority of candidates, certainly people in the House, but the elite of the Democratic Party, uh, they're worried about the radicalization of the working class. Um, and so they say, let's mitigate the intensity of the exploitation in the United States, but they don't mind plundering the rest of the world, which is why on the whole, with some exceptions, the corporate Dems and the corporate Republicans have been pretty much on the same page of foreign policy, uh, more or less for most of, you know, since World War II. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, let me cut to the chase to the answer because you can kind of go on with this. As, as let's be clear who we are. Nobody much gives a shit what we say anyway. Let's acknowledge that. We're not in power. We don't get to decide US foreign policy. Mm -hmm. What we can do is speak out as progressives of what is what we think the most rational 
course of action for people to demand of, the, of their elites and to get organized to take as much power as possible, even at the level of unions and communities, and then electorally, and, and at hopefully, and sooner than later, because we don't have much time, really build a mass movement, both in the streets and electorally, that can get some rationality back into this discourse. You know, we're not within the next 10 years or five years. I don't know, in terms of climate, you know, the predictions get worse and worse. The time frame of the window of opportunity to do something, uh, you know, is getting, every time you hear a prediction, it's, it's, it's less years. Um, we need urgently, urgently to get back, to, you know, in 1969, there was a massive protest against the Vietnam War. They called it the moratorium. You know, I'm working on this film with Daniel Ellsberg now. That massive protest in 1969 uh, helped curb Nixon's plan to use a nuclear tactical nuclear weapon in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, in Ellsberg's release of the Pentagon Papers was another blow to uh, preventing Nixon from using it. And in 1972, there's a conversation between Nixon and uh, Kissinger. It's, there's actually a recording, people may have heard this, where he asked, he asked Kissinger, you know, Kissinger says to Nixon, maybe we should blow up the dams. And Nixon says, how many people will it kill? And Kissinger says, probably around 200,000. And Nixon says, well, then why don't we just use a nuclear weapon? And Kissinger says, well, isn't that going too far? And Nixon said, why? Are, are you afraid of that? Something like that? I mean, I'm actually going to use the actual, we have the tapes, you know, the tapes have been released to that conversation. Wow. And the Pentagon Papers coming out and, and the trial of Ellsberg, which led to the Watergate investigation, which led to the downfall of Nixon. All of these things, mass movement, whistleblowing, it actually stopped. Nixon from a real plan and Ellsberg says Nixon had already commissioned a targeting of where the nuclear tactical nuclear bomb or maybe bombs would hit in North Vietnam. It had gotten that far that they had actually knew where they were going to drop them. And they were prevented from doing it by American public opinion. Um, we need that again now. Um, because and as much as we need it, we, and hope that it also rises in Russia, an anti-war movement rises, and, and there is some indication it is, uh, and, and you know, there's stories of the amount of people leaving Russia because of this, oh, over, yeah. over a million and it may even be more. Um, we're in an urgent moment for climate and nuclear threat, and we need to get organized at every level of society, wherever we can. Um, you know, and, and in terms of Ukraine, I know a lot of the Ukrainians don't like what I'm going to say, and I know I'm saying the same thing Chomsky's been saying, and Ellsberg and Chomsky, Chomsky has been getting denounced by some a lot of Ukrainian leftists for this. But there's got to be a compromise to get to your question, because mm-hmm. of the climate crisis, because of the threat of nuclear war, and because, and let's, and maybe in the most immediate sense, how many more. Th- Tens of thousands of people need to die. How many more children need to die? How many more people? How many, including Russian soldiers? 
And dying for what? Let's say they liberate Crimea. Let's say they're successful in Donbass. Then what? Hand it all back to the Ukrainian oligarchy? So the, uh, the same corrupt, rotten oligarchs that helped create the conditions for this war, and I'm not putting the primary onus on them, without doubt the primary onus is on the Russian oligarchs, then the Americans, the whole context and the pushing of NATO, sure. But the Ukrainian oligarchy have a lot of responsibility in creating these conditions. And they're going to hand all this right back to the Ukrainian oligarchs, because right now there doesn't seem to be any kind of independent movement in Ukraine. Because what I would love to see is the Ukrainian workers take all these guns and all these weapons, tell the Russians, you want Ukraine denazified? Great. Get the hell out of Ukraine and you go denazify Russia. We'll denazify Ukraine, including using all these weapons to overthrow the Ukrainian oligarchy. And we'll build a real independent progressive Ukraine. I mean, that's what I'd like to see. I, I, but I don't know that that force is there. So if it's not there, what are they, what, what they going to get if they liberate these places except the Ukrainian oligarchy in alliance with NATO and Western European and American capital? They run, you know, they, they just go back to kind of where they were. Uh, so, 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 yes, of course, there must be a compromise. We as progressives here need to demand a compromise that's in the, for the good of the Ukrainian people. Mm -hmm. But we need more than that. What I'm about to say is, sure, I'm looking through rosy glasses, but I see no way out for humanity other than what I'm about to to save, and I don't see how we get there, but we need to demand it anyway. We need this grand global, like they used to have the Geneva Convention. We need a, 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 con a massive conference of the UN or certainly of the major powers. There needs to be one, a compromise in Ukraine, which includes legitimate referendums for uh, Lugansk, for Donbass, for Crimea. There needs to be a Marshall Plan of some sort. I hate using the word because there are a lot of negative sides to that. But at any rate, China, the United States needs to offer Russia a way out of a fossil fuel economy. And not just Russia. There needs to be a, an international urgent agreement. You know, that movie, Don't Look Up, a meteor is coming or an alien invasion. Well, we're there. We're at a point where if, if the major powers don't come together and have this grand bargain of a transition off fossil fuels, at least some kind of nuclear weapons uh, limitation treaties. You know, we have virtually, we essentially have no nuclear weapons treaties now. The last one's going to expire in 2024, but the inspections have already stopped. The Russian-American inspections are, are not even happening. So the treaty is effectively not, not enforced. We don't have any nuclear weapons agreements right now. So we're headed for an all-out, unrestricted, new nuclear arms race. And it's all we're in it. We're not headed for it. Wrong language. We're in it. The United States already has a plan to spend at least $1.5 trillion. The Russians are going to do what they can to match it. And because of that, now the Chinese are trying to match it. The Chinese up until now were very modest. I think they only had about 200 uh, ICBMs, and they were keeping it at the level of a deterrent. But because of this 
craziness going on in the United States, which is also pushing the Russians. Uh, the Chinese are now starting to build up their nuclear weaponry. I mean, we are headed towards existential goodbye humans. So we better get organized. Well, that's a, that's a lot to unpack there, Paul. You weren't kidding. <laughs> so let, let me just uh, ask, ask a couple of questions and we'll throw it to John and Anne. Is, um, I think the Ukraines inherited a Soviet system of oligarchy. And I think the Ukraine ol oligarchs were beholden to the Russian ones. As the war was going, there was still a helicopter motor plant producing motors in ukraine and sending them to russia to kill ukrainians with with what uh, Zelensky has done in a war in a war setting you can do this you can be um i don't know if it's ultra cruel or you can he's he's kind of taken the ukraine oligarchy out of the system um, according to what I read now, do you, do you not think that's, that's a step forward for Ukraine? I don't, I, I, I can speculate. I don't know. Right. Enough. I would just say that in wartime, and it's as it happened in the United States in world war two, I mean, FDR was essentially an emperor during world war two, mm -hmm. even leading up to it. Some say, um, sure. But, but, Maybe what emerges out of this, maybe, is a little more of the Ru current Russian-style state. I wouldn't compare it to the Soviet, where you have a state, a, a, a state capitalism uh, in partnership with an oligarchy. And right now, the state seems to be more powerful than the oligarchs, but the state itself, Putin and others, are oligarchs. So it's a section, you could say, of the oligarchy has direct control over the state. Mm -hmm. The individual oligarchs are not part of that inner circles. Right. If they play ball, they keep their wealth. Um, now, maybe Ukraine will emerge with that. Now, my understanding from talking to Ukrainian is that prior to the invasion, there's a basic contradiction within the Ukrainian oligarchy. The eastern Donbass based oligarchs relied on cheap natural gas from Russia. Mm -hmm. and they didn't want to have such an antagonistic relationship with Russia. And the Western oligarchs, Western Ukraine, were the ones far more pushing for the EU relationship. Um, but it wasn't simplistic because a lot of them also wanted the EU relationship. Uh, so, but there are some basic contradictions in the oligarchy, which mm -hmm. are kind of gravitate towards the Russian sphere of capitalism and which gravitate towards the Western sphere of capitalism. And that is in fact what the war really is about. Yeah. It wasn't actually about any NATO threat to Russia. I think that's a crock. Uh, it play, it's an important piece of the nationalist narrative in Russia, and that can't be underestimated. The nationalist narratives in the United States is, is critical to holding that society together. If it wasn't for Americanism, why wouldn't Americans rise up and get rid of their own bloody oligarchs? It's a very important piece. I mean, how do poor 
people from all these southern states go march off to war and die, you know, for Americanism. I mean, it's for a total. I almost think it's a class struggle because the Russians going to die or coming from the least um, economically advantaged and uh, there's commercials running in Russia right now. Um, you want to buy your daughter an iPhone? Join the army. You need a new car? Join the army. So it, to me, it sounds like more of a class war. Well, of course, it is. And the Americans, yeah. the American army is very similar. Most of the people join yeah. supposed volunteer. They're doing it out of economic necessity. Mm -hmm. But but the, but the relationship of the Ukrainian state to the Ukrainian oligarchy assuming this ends with this state still intact and right now it looks like it will um then i don't see why i wouldn't kind of go back with the the, the pro-western oligarchs will be dominant but I, I don't know if Zelensky has really the kind of power that putin has so it, you mm -hmm. know if he loses that wartime clout and popularity uh the uh, ukrainian oligarchs i think will wind up more powerful in relationship to the state than is in russia but i'm sort of speculating and and, and i'm not sure it matters right now that much well that's true but i i'm hoping what, what's going to happen is all these soldiers on the ukraine front line won't won't take the crap anymore from the oligarchs they'll be you know highly trained much the same as what happened in canada the united states when the second world uh, war veterans came in unions started expanding and uh, there were more stuff for the people john you look like you have a question am i wrong well i wanted to say first of all i think that uh paul's analysis is dead on um i mean just starting with the climate crisis you know, uh, if there were a increase in the average global temperature of 10 C, uh, civilization's gone, uh, and humanity would be lucky to still have any survivors, I think over, over the intermediate term, that that's just catastrophe if that would happen. even half of that increase would pose an extinction threat to to humans and it would be we'd be living under conditions that are totally foreign to us today so yes i agree completely that climate is and should be the number one issue that the world is dealing with because in the very short future uh it's going to cause global catastrophes that are going to kill millions of people and as this happens and as uh food supplies become disrupted and transportation networks become disrupt disrupted uh the opportunity for conflict increases dramatically and that includes you know using things like nuclear weapons mm. so you know, I understand the the horrific situation that is transpiring in Ukraine and in other places around the world with other conflicts. Um, but if we're serious about surviving as a species, I think we need to come to the realization that we have to prioritize addressing climate change as a species. And nationalism 
is almost entirely poisonous. You know, uh, Paul said, I, I don't understand how it is that people sign up for these wars when their own elites in their own nations are having a war against them in terms of their quality of life, in terms of their ability even to, to have a life. Um, so this is, uh, you know, it's fundamental uh, that we have to address these things and, and to recognize that essentially the war in Ukraine is a distraction from the most important uh, priority, which has to be climate change and also addressing uh, nuclear threats. Um, it's just those, those two issues are, you know, magnitudes greater a threat than what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, and that's not to say what's going on in Ukraine is not important, um, but compared to those two issues, you know, it doesn't even compare. I, I would just, I would just say that they're they're kind of all tied up with each other because the the reality is there needs to be a deal in Ukraine to be able to have the conversation. And uh, and and China, I mean, the the, the ridiculousness of the um, hawkishness towards China. But if you want a dystopian future, listen to this one. You know, think about that conversation with Kissinger and Nixon. If it hadn't been for maybe the Pentagon Papers and then Watergate, Nixon seriously considered using a tactical nuclear weapon. Kissinger seriously thinking about blowing up dams that could kill 200,000 people. You know, this is a, a state with Truman that drops nuclear weapons on Japan, firebombs city after city. These people do not care about killing hundreds of thousands and even millions of people. They don't, you know, they can live with that. So listen to this future. What happens at four degrees, three, four degrees, when millions and tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people from Latin America have to move north? What are they gonna do to stop them? There's no wall. There's one way to stop them, and there's only one way that I know, oh, two ways. There's a rational way, which is right now, a real proper kind of Marshall Plan for Latin America, transition off fossil fuel, and help build a sustainable economy in Latin America. You could even start with Central America, or, and this, you know, I hate even to say these words, but you cannot rule this out. Tactical nuclear weapons used in Mexico so people can't come north. You, you know, who, you really think this is beyond these fucking people? A good what's, the, what's the alternative to stopping tens of millions of people coming north? You know, what, machine guns at the border? Even that wouldn't do it. Elon spaceship. Cool. Yeah, that's 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 nonsense too. Yeah. Uh, if they're doing anything, they may well be doing something you know, under under the under the earth, uh, they may have some secret ways to live down there. But that's all ridiculous too. I mean, with if there's nuclear winter, you know, they they better plan to stay down there for about 25, 30 years or something. Uh, and it may be some rich people will survive. But that, the, the end of "Don't Look Up" is great, isn't that? Is that the one where the dinosaurs eat them all at the end? <laughs> yes. 
Anne, you look like you have a question. Well, I, you know, I, I think uh, it is very compelling. The, the, the climate issues are still and will remain as, as far as we can see the kind of uh, backsliding that has b become uh, kind of normal for a lot of uh, neoliberal uh, approaches to solving the, the crisis at a, uh, at a standard uh, peaceful level. I, I actually tend to agree with you that the, the initiation of a tactical nuclear strike somewhere, somehow, will punctuate, I think, uh, some important move. Whether it winds up in peace or not is an, another question. I, I do want to ask you why uh, it, it seems that Ukraine is making a serious attempt to de-oligarch or at least uh, purge one one portion of of its oligarchy mm -hmm. um, and i i think that they're doing this on the prompting of course of the eu and of the united states this is incremental i think you'll wind up still with a a smaller perhaps uh, or wider group of oligarchs in ukraine but these kinds of solutions are still predicated i think on trying to find a ceasefire solution and that ceasefire solution is going to be not impossible. I and I think that that's kind of the message that the Ukrainians are sending, that they only want to go back to the 2014 borders, which which includes Crimea. And so Crimea is probably the linchpin for, for some, or at least the negotiating point for a ceasefire that will probably return Crimea to the Russians and keep, as you say, a federated system but it's going to take a long slog of ceasefire, demilitarized zones, a lot of diplomacy, and probably some serious military victory on both sides to kind of get us to that point. Do you see that as kind of a reasonable case? But can we can it be done quickly before some nuclear a solution occurs? It it seems pretty clear that that uh, uh, fighting around Zaporizhia uh the reactor there is was symptomatic of a kind of testing of our will to either have another chernobyl or not and mm -hmm. and whether that's going to be a key element in the kind of negotiations that move forward i don't disagree with you about the possibility of 10 degrees it it we are at a technological point where we can achieve that but your suggestion that we're going to get to a kind of global solution for these kinds of things uh with all due respect, a Marshall Plan is well. Unfortunately, there are more more uh, people on the side of a kind of neoliberal solution to that than than there are to a kind of uh, UN solution. I I wonder what you how you see that scenario working out. It it seems as though we're going to need a a, a change in consciousness that will proceed farther beyond any kind of mass movement. I'm not sure of the last sentence. Well, I think you're urging a a kind of change in consciousness that would would be a kind of mass movement that I and I I don't disagree with you about the the issue of mass movements in the 60s and 70s. Uh, I you know, I I grew up in a generation that hoped that that we would be able to have such a movement. Um there's some on the ground who believe that uh, you know that a a mass student strike, for example, would would have uh, uh, compelled that. But 
as we see, we do a lot of memorials, but we still haven't moved to sort of the next step of of controlling the military in the United States. And and uh, it seems somewhat futile to assume that a mass movement can achieve those kinds of ends. Yeah, I, I would I would say there's two possible objective factors that could play in favor of this. Um, we'll see. First of all, the elites, capitalist elites, since the 19th century, you know, when, when, since modern industrialization, uh, uh, have been split on this question of how intensely to exploit workers. Um, the, uh, I'll give it quickly. I mean, I don't know if I told this story last time, but there's a mine in Wales. Did I tell you the mine in Wales story last time? No? All right, so I was in this mine in Wales, an iron ore mine. And it continuously mined since the Romans, so like 2,500 years of iron ore mining. But in the mid 1800s, the, uh, there was no air filtration system. So you weren't allowed to pee when you were working down there. And if you didn't keep your job, you'd get fired and your family would probably starve. The, 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 the choice was have at least somebody in the family working in the mine, hopefully a, a man, a woman, and a child or children, or you starve. But you couldn't pee, so so they couldn't use donkeys to haul the ore up to the surface. They had to use, so they used women. Uh, by you know mid eighteen hundreds or so, so many women's pelvises had been twisted and distorted by the weight of hauling iron ore to the surface that they couldn't have babies anymore. <laughs> um, the children were dying. Uh, being forced to go up into these little crevices in the ceiling of the mine and they put sharp stones down the back of their shirts so they couldn't sleep. Um, they were destroying the working class to the extent that they wouldn't be able to have new workers to go mine. So that there was a split. This wasn't just happening in the mines. It was happening throughout British industry where the level of exploitation of, of especially women and children was so intense that there was a question, would there be enough workers? So the capitalist class splits on this. A section say, for the sake of capitalism, we got to pull back on this intense level of exploitation. And the, and the other section says, well, screw you, because I make more money doing it this way. The, 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 the ones that were more in understanding the needs systemically won, and they did ban child labor in the mines, and they did ban women working in mines, and eventually there was an eight-hour working day, which also came from a mass movement, like it was both. You know, there was a, a rise of workers getting organized, and sections of the elites that saw it was in a systemic interest to have some level of reform. Can we see that again now? And you still need both. There is no foreseeable mass movement strong enough, whether it's in the streets or electorally, to make the kind of change we need just at that level of the mass movement. You, you need some sections of the elites to see their own interest is jeopardized, both by the threat of nuclear war 
and catastrophic climate change. Now on climate, you can kind of see an, an acknowledgement of that. You know, it's finally penetrated, like even Larry Fink from BlackRock talks about the need for some for companies to be more accountable that starts to get through their heads that this really is an existential threat and uh although there's no conversation on nuclear uh but nothing in terms of a really effective policy other than you know biden's plan the supposed anti-inflation thing whatever he called it but but that thing at least it was something compared to nothing but it's nowhere near what's needed so the, the problem is the system itself uh, works against this kind of solutions because like, let's say BlackRock wants to get out of coal, which they said they did. They claim they wanted to pull back on their coal investment. Well, when they do, Vanguard just steps in or somebody else steps in and picks up the coal investment. Like without government intervention of a phasing out of coal, the market can't do it, even if you have even a, a, an asset management fund as powerful as BlackRock, which is what, has something like $8 trillion under management now. Between BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, the three largest asset management companies, they have more money under management than the GDP of China. <laughs> I mean, that's insane, right? Three companies. Yeah. But they're very competitive. And they also, the craziest thing happened recently. Um, uh, Mark Carney, who used to be the governor of the Bank of Canada and then went on to be the governor of the Bank of England and now is a special climate consultant for Guterres at the UN, created an a, a organization from the financial sector to big banks, asset management companies all over the world. He recruited them to start making green investments, start trying to make the companies they invest in more accountable. It, it was more greenwashing than real but anyway at least they acknowledged the problem at least so some republican governors threatened that if any bank starts going down the road of this green and like this mccarney's group that state would no longer do business with that bank and vanguard pulled out because of it the second largest asset management company. So the market can't do it. So, but we have to, we have to get way louder because even Bernie doesn't talk about this and not nearly enough and hardly at all. We need public ownership. And, and we have to start with this question of fossil fuel phasing out regulations. It's clear the marketplace can't do it. And, and I think, anybody who's not brain dead in the elites has to know this is true so maybe with the rise of a movement and some sections of capital who like those who saw you better ban child labor and women female labor maybe some will start to say you know we're jeopardizing our own wealth okay maybe the fossil fuel people have to get sacrificed here <laughs> you know even you take the manufacturers of nuclear weapons who it's a big deal to Lockheed Martin, the, the amount of money they make on this new generation of ICBMs. It's, I, you know, it may be close to, what is it? I think it's hundred, $200 billion. I don't know. There's a trillion dollars more of contracts out there of this whole rehab, renewal of nuclear weapons. 
But if you actually look at who owns Lockheed Martin, it's the banks. It's these asset management companies and other banks. If you look, go to you, you look up who owns Lockheed Martin, CNN has a good breakdown of this. The majority investor, I think, in every single one of the 12 companies that make nuclear weapons, you'll see is under the category of institutional investors. Well, those are the big banks and especially asset management funds. Well, if you look at the size of that $8 trillion that, say, BlackRock has under management, how much is that Lockheed Martin nuclear weapons contracts mean to them? Not that much. It's very small amount of money when you're looking at the size of a BlackRock. So like I, like in this film, if I get it, I want to go try to get an interview with Larry Fink. And I'm going to say, listen, you have a, you said you have a responsibility to defend the assets of your investors, but doesn't mean you also have a responsibility to defend the asses of your investors. Because <laughs> these assets won't be worth hell. Not, they'll be nothing. They won't they'll be worthless in maybe as little as 10, 15 years. We're not talking end of the century. You know, if, at, at, you know, if we're crossing two degrees by 2050, you know, you, th- you think there was disruption in global supply chains during the pandemic? I mean, it's, there won't you know, there won't be global supply chains at three degrees, two to three degrees. It's a joke. So they're very short-sighted, but maybe this combination of elites starting to get the danger, starting to understand the need for government intervention. I mean, they did deal with acid rain, so it's not out of the question. This kind of thing can happen. So one of the things we have to do is be better at, finding ways to communicate with ordinary people who who are whose identities are so wrapped up in americanism a certain kind of religion because uh, i'm in no way condemning all people who are religious but there's a certain forms of religion which are interwoven with americanism and apocalyptic thinking and and maybe there's a certain section of people you can't get to but I think a lot, most people could listen to this if there's some way to get to them. So that's, I'm hoping this movie of the nuclear thing, you know, Emma, uh, yeah, it's been announced publicly. I can say this now. Emma Thompson's going to be the narrator for it. So it's going to give us a mainstream possibility to, to get it out there. Anyway. Hey, uh, well, I, I really want to talk about that. Uh, we need to, uh, let's just say this is the end of part one and we'll come back for the, uh, start a part two.